Can I say we'll give it up? John Dixon. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking time out of your day. No problem. I like to start typically just kind of with some early musical memories. Um, maybe it was an artist or a record that really was inspiring at an early age and kind mm-hmm. of set you off on that uh, on that tangent. You know, when when you catch the bug, so to speak. Sure, sure. Uh, for me, it was James Brown live at the Apollo. Uh, just a uh, amazing, energetic record that when I first heard it, it just uh, it just caught my attention. I started out, you know, Fats Domino, Ricky Nelson, the usual ones, not Elvis so much, but but a lot of the the popular stuff, and then I kind of. Uh, started checking out R&B a little more. And then anyway, when I first uh, heard it, and I I honestly can't remember, it might have been on KCAC. It might have been on the radio here. There was an AM soul station for a while in Phoenix. And uh, in any case, when I first heard it, I ran out and bought a copy immediately and then just... uh, just kind of stayed in my bedroom with my little uh, my little uh, record player, just listening. Uh, what was the most fascinating uh, for me was just the excitement. It mm-hmm. was just the absolute energy and excitement that popped out of the groove. And then I started to kind of imagine, well, what's actually going on at the time? What are these guys yeah. doing at the moment right. to um, just elicit the the screams and yells and uh just excitement from the audience so uh that was really the one moment in in the day uh it was a very short race about 31 minutes i think both sides for a live recording so uh they would actually play it casey would play the whole thing they'd flip it over that's awesome and uh that was uh, unusual but it just uh, made it kind of a complete moment in time. And then I uh, I always wanted to be a drummer. And so in grade school, I had taken a couple instruments because the day that they were giving instruments out, they ran out of drums. So I ended <laughs> up struggling, I think, with the saxophone and a violin for a while. And then uh, a little bit later when I was... Uh, uh, must have been early college I was going to ASU. Anyway, I was befriended by a great drummer, a local drummer named Jim Baston, who maybe a lot of your uh, listeners may remember. Jimmy was just a wonderful guy, fantastic drummer. I uh, played at the Playboy Club, played with uh, Keith Greco. Uh, he just played with a ton of people. He was in the ASU Symphony. Uh, he played with Steve Foreman. He and Steve Foreman were good buddies, and uh, Steve was uh, a percussionist at the symphony, at the ASU Symphony, at the Phoenix Symphony, and then Steve went on to uh, very uh, uh, went on to have a very successful career uh, in L.A. He played with uh, Lee Rittenauer for a while, and he teaches. I think he's in Ireland now. Anyway, he was a first call percussionist on a ton of albums. But but anyway, in those early days, um, I was just fascinated by drums, and Jim uh, was dating a, f- a friend of mine from high school, and so that's how I got to meet him, and he was very generous in his time. And one uh, summer, 
uh, there was a wonderful store here on Central called Liederman's Music that everyone will remember. I think Beth is still, I, she is definitely still playing, but, mm-hmm. but Bernie uh, was just a wonderful guy, uh, ran this great classic music store. Uh, Jim was giving drum lessons at Liederman's, and then one day he played a set of flatjacks, which are one-skin drum. They're really unusual. It's just got one uh, drum head and then like a chrome ring around all of them. And they made a snare too, but it was really crappy. It was just a loud, it just sounded so bad. So so anyway, there was Jim Baston's drum set for sale in the window at Liederman. So I just said, ah, I've just got to get it. So I was working at ASU on the ground screw that summer. And I think, you know, 15 bucks a week or whatever, Bernie, you know, signed a little paperwork. I got the drums and Jim gave me some lessons. Anyway, I had that drum set set up in my bedroom so I could sit and listen to James Brown live mm. at the Apollo and try and figure out what the drummer was doing. And uh, so that was kind of my uh, OJT uh, um, start as a musician. And I put that in quotes because I, I never really was. But uh, I played in a couple of bands and worked a couple uh, summers with different groups, played Vegas one summer and played uh, San Diego one summer. As a drummer. Them. As a drummer. Mm-hmm. And a vocalist, too. And um, so that was really my musical start. But getting back to your original question, it was James Brown live at the Apollo. And who was the original drummer at that show for, for James Brown? Do you remember? Well, that I can't, I can't remember. I don't, I don't, I think this had been uh, the gone. Fats Gonder was the orchestra leader. So this would have been, uh, you know, before the funky drummer Clyde Stubblefield and all that. So I, off the top of my head, I I don't really know who that original drummer was, but it it was, uh, it it was early on and um, just, he, he really wasn't into the funk thing then. It was Hmm. more R and B. So Hmm. it was a little, a little different tempos he got a little funkier as the decade went along this is early 60s yeah this would be yeah it'd be uh i'm gonna say 60 uh maybe 62 something like that do you still have that record oh yeah i've got many i've got several copies (laughs) there's a stereo mono the promo yeah. So you have to, uh, yeah, no, I'm a vinyl junkie too. Right. That's that's what I've been doing for years. And so over the years, and then I got the CDs and then, you know, on one of the CDs, there's like 20 seconds extra music that huh. just was not on the vinyl for whatever reason when they got the original tapes to uh, make the transfers. So um, I'm very, very familiar with the album and uh, it just uh, really... Uh, piqued my interest in uh, music and record collecting, and um, I got into R&B and soul uh, very much heavily after that. I find it interesting that that medium, I guess you could say this about cassette tapes as well, but there's a, there's a limit to what you can put on it, right? There's a, there's a time limit, and it's interesting, I guess, who was making the decisions, what made it onto the record or not and i mean say what you will about the fidelity let's say of cds you have a little bit more option you have a little bit more time right Mm -hmm. so that's Mm -hmm. kind of that's the one well and maybe the fragility of vinyl right are the two knocks against that but but as a audiophile that's still the gold standard indeed it is and uh uh i think Proof of that is just the fact that how 
records are selling these days and yeah. how uh, many older records are being repressed time and again and again and again. And uh, especially, uh, I mean, I, I would say jazz probably leads the the way because those uh, those collectors are like classical, but there are fewer classical uh, listeners. Uh, but they demand, you know, a high quality and they want to hear the music presented in the best possible format. And for many people, it's vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak just briefly about how you got to Tempe? On a train. <laughs> um, my... Uh, from where? <laughs> from uh, Corvallis, Oregon. My mom was... Wow, that's uh, a train ride. Yeah, I was an uh, only child, and my mom was uh, uh, a widow and um, into uh, education. She was working to get her um, teacher certificate. So we came to Tempe, I think, 1953, got off the train in August from Corvallis, Oregon, which was really uh, a shock uh, temperature-wise, <laughs> and uh, many other things too. But uh, the train actually stopped in Tempe in those days, and we got off and uh, spent the first night at the Casaloma Hotel. And uh, um, then Mom um, looked for a job, and she ended up uh, getting a job at uh, at Matthews Library, which was on the ASU campus. And so uh, she was uh, working in the uh, curriculum department. And uh, working on getting her uh, her teacher certificate, mm-hmm. which she finally got. And she was um, kind of a wanderer. She uh, had a two-year plan. So she would, we lived, uh, I was born in Hawaii. We were there for two years and went to Oatana, Minnesota for two years, Corvallis, Oregon for two years. So she came to Tempe, thinking two years, and uh, she would send uh, letters out to Chambers of Commerce asking for uh, information on a city. So she got s- several pamphlets back, one of them being Tempe, Arizona, a beautiful little town, 10,000 with a college. And so that seemed to appeal to her. So we went there. And then two years after we got her, she was ready to go again. She, I think she wanted to go to Berea, Kentucky. And uh, I I just kind of, oh, mom, I, I don't want to leave my friends. I don't want to go, you know, and Instead of saying, you know, you know, shut up, get on the Let's train, <laughs> we'll be fine. You'll, right. And I would have been. Right. But she uh, she heeded my request and uh, ended up uh, finally getting her uh, teacher certificate. And she was the first white teacher in the Roosevelt District. I think in 55, they finally integrated. And so she had met the uh, principal of the school there who was working on his doctor degree and and he liked my mom and said, you know, we're going to be uh, hiring some white teachers and mm. you'd be perfect to uh, come to the school. So she started uh, at Percy L. Julian uh, teaching the third grade and she taught out there for about 20, 25, 26 years wow. before she retired. Yeah. Wow. And and so you were able to convince her to stay. Was it always kind of a foregone conclusion that you would go to ASU? No, yeah. no, not necessarily. It, it, just, it just worked out well because... Uh, um, you know, it was there, number one. And, hey, it was cheap. I mean, mm. and Lord knows what the uh, tuition was in those days, but uh, it just uh, seemed a natural thing. I went to Tempe High, graduated from Tempe High, and then uh, uh, went to ASU for a couple of years. And, and they had a broadcast. I, I was a broadcast major at ASU. Okay, that was my next question. So that was another, uh, another reason uh, to, uh, to go there. And uh, so I went for 
two years, and then uh, over the summer, uh, I was playing uh, with Stan Dever on the Trendsetters, and uh, we I was doing the sound and lights at the Red Dog Saloon, which was uh, a lot of people will remember as a club in uh, in Scottsdale. Going to school in the day and then cleaning the bars and running the sound and lights with my friend Ronnie Harkins at night. So um, I was very familiar with the band anyway. Stan was playing that the drummer got sick, had something that he had to pull out. And uh, the manager, who's a guy by the name of George Labe, uh, George said uh, to me, Call me Philly. Hey Philly, you've got a set of drums, don't you? And I go, well, yeah. You know, I wasn't playing at the at the time. I said, yeah, I do. Uh, and he said, well, listen, we got this gig in San Diego, and I knew the set because I was right, kind of doing the lights all night long and sound, right, so right. I was very familiar with the songs. So, uh, so that was it. So, so anyway, we ended up uh, uh, going to uh, to San Diego for. Uh, for it was supposed to be a two-week gig. It ended up being the whole summer. We had a house down on the beach. It was just a wonderful, wonderful gig. It was called the Quad Room was the name of the... Uh, so it was a bowling alley, and then they had this wonderful lounge, just a beautiful lounge stage. And I'll never forget when we... Uh, so so we loaded the stuff up in a Corvair station wagon, if anybody can even... A van, excuse me, a Corvair van if anybody can imagine it, they had the engine kind of in the rear over the wheels. It was a funky little. So, and I think we even had a Hammond B3. So oh, wow. um, it was, but my drums were flat chest. So it was really right. small. That helped outside. So we broke down in Indio, going on, broke down in the middle of Indio. And uh, so we're out in the middle of nowhere. So George hustled up a, uh, got somebody at a restaurant or something with a, um, like a big pickup truck with the, uh, rails in the back for hauling hay or cattle or whatever and kind of so we loaded everything on that and then went on into san diego but there was no cover we were in the back like lobsters <laughs> sitting in the sun this is summertime and so we got to san diego and literally we're pulling up uh backing in to uh, load in the quadrum and a band's coming out and it was gary puckett in the union gap <sighs> they were going up to la to make their first uh record so wow. this would have been 66 something like that so anyway that that kind of got me uh that got me out of uh out of college i so i didn't sign up for my junior year and then i got my draft notice while i was there and so uh i ended up coming back and uh doing my service and then got out of there and then came back to issue my junior year on the mm-hmm. on the gi bill mm-hmm. so i kind of picked it up but that was the end of my musical career as a drummer so after that it was more radio station programming djing record company work sales a and r so uh it just my interest in music um just kind of changed a bit as far as employment but uh it was uh it's always been a great way to make a buck <laughs> you don't often hear that no you don't i mean <laughs> But I'm not a musician now. Right. See, I'm selling records and right. doing other things, and so it's a little more uh, uh, job secure, perhaps. But uh, no, so I've always been very blessed to, uh, you know, kind of. It was a hobby, record collecting, that really turned into a long-term employment uh, for uh, for all these years. Very proud to say that Gensler Amplification is sponsoring this podcast. Come on. Time is now. You need to upgrade your gear. 
I know you've been thinking about it. I know you're talking to your friends about it. Gensler Amplification has a bunch of great stuff. Go check them out online. GenslerAmplification.com. Now, if you're a bass player, got a ton of options, gay. Uh, if you're a singer-songwriter, uh, they have uh, the Acoustic Array Pro, which I have. Uh, they have the Acoustic Array Mini. They're now getting into different pedals. I have the REQEQ pedal, which is great. I'm just, I'm just telling you. You know, maybe it's, it's 2022. Time to step up your game. And you should go to GenslerAmplification.com. Browse around. Take some time. Don't rush yourself. Find the right piece of gear for you. GenslerAmplification.com. GenslerAmplification.com. That moment, kind of mid-60s, early 60s, had such a profound effect on, you know, how the songs were written, you know, who performed them, how they were recorded. Um, And part of this show, this Live from Laurel Canyon show, talks about how kind of in in the early 60s, especially the influence of the Beatles and folk artists like Bob Dylan, who were writing their own material and performing it and actually recorded it as the musicians, right? Um, can you speak to that moment kind of as, as, in terms of how American popular music started to develop? Well, yeah, basically bands started writing their own music. I mean, before that, you went in and Snuff Garrett gave you 12 songs and you performed them and right. that was the end of it. And maybe you wrote a couple, maybe you didn't. But the point being that the band's input on the final uh, record uh, was minimal. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless uh, uh, you were a singer and wrote your own songs. I mean, there there were exceptions. But for bands, uh, a lot of it was pretty much doing cover material and such. And then uh, uh, bands started to record their own music. And, and record companies, you know, fought it because that goes back to club owners saying, no, 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 I don't want to hear any original songs. I want to hear the Beatles or I want to hear the Stones. I don't. Mm. That's what our customers want, and that's so. That was kind of changing too, mm-hmm. where the audience went to hear bands like, in this case, maybe the Spiders or someone who uh, started writing their own music after their first few recordings were were cover songs. They started to write their own music, so the audience started to accept original songs in the club. And then obviously they started to record them the same way. But uh, no, it was uh, uh, heavily the producer's game and record company's game. And in you know, publishing, it was all a big mystery in those days. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really, if you were a band, uh, you just kind of rolled along with uh, whatever you were told. And then also what also added to the chains were management, where management came in. And they started getting more power to the band, you know, uh, uh, Led Zeppelin, Peter Grant, you know, I mean, he he started to redo the deals recording-wise, concert-wise. Okay, you know, we get 90% of the gate. You know, I mean, these were things that just before that, uh, people had just kind of put up with, with whatever uh, the promoters or the record companies uh, gave. So record deals started to get renegotiated when mm-hmm. they ran out after a couple of years. Artists started getting a bigger percentage. Artists started keeping their masters. Mm-hmm. They said, no, no, we'll lease them to you. We're going to own them. You know, 
early on, Sam Cook was one that comes to mind, Ray Charles, James Brown. They set up their own production company. Mm-hmm. They realized, hey, wait a minute. That's, why, where why, that's, that, that's where you can make money. In the long run, it's publishing. Right. At the end of the day, boys and girls, right. publishing <laughs> is where the money is to be made. And uh, so that all started to change in the 60s. But I think the most important thing for bands were that they could uh, do their own thing. I yeah. mean, they could write it. They could record it. Uh, they could p- perform it in concerts and... And so the returns were were bigger, and uh, uh, um, musicians realized that uh, they didn't have to do you know cover songs; they could mm. do their own unique, uh, original songs and uh, and make a living at it. And in some cases, uh, a great living, mm-hmm. become famous. Mm-hmm. Those changes must also have been reflected in the in the radio industry right oh, absolutely so that all must have happened at the same but time it, right? yeah it did um there were uh you know in the old days you would listen to the disc jockey you know that was when i grew up i i was in this town it was either chris or crux were the two early radio stations i started out originally listening to kpho which was even before uh those stations uh, because they were really the only rock and roll station. And Dave Steer, the wild child, you know, you find someone that you can relate to. Mm-hmm. And later on, Tony Evans on Chris was uh, was really one of my idols as far as a DJ. And then I wanted to be a DJ. I, w- I was playing uh, records. Uh, we were doing record hops in, in, uh, in high school. So my friend Ron Harkins and myself started a little company called Have Records Will Spin. So after the basketball game, they kick everybody out. We'd set up our little speakers and records. So I was the record guy. Ron was the electronics guy. So that's where I started to really develop an interest in in vinyl, uh, collecting it, found out about distribution, promo copies, Mm. how it works with radio. So I kind of uh, started to appreciate and enjoy uh, the other side uh, of this, uh, not necessarily being musician, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of other great things you could do musically uh, without having to having to be on stage. So that was really mm-hmm. uh, kind of the the impetus uh, to uh, to get out and do more. And then we started. Uh, we got a third partner, so we could literally do three record hops the same night because mm. i we had enough records we had three sets of turntables and microphones and so that was a fun business for a couple of years and then uh the other thing was in the the uh radio station djs were doing the same thing you know for 50 bucks they come out with a little box of records and a little one of those little rca uh uh turntables you know with the with the red top and you'd stack seven records on and you plug it into the PA system in the gym and uh, and then get a microphone and plug it into the wall in the gym. Anyway, these guys were kind of the only game. And then Ron and I kind of came along and started doing it. But then what happened in the early 60s, uh, the Beatles hit. Mm. So everybody wanted to be in a band. Mm. So then all the um, different you know teen clubs and, and everything that were doing dances – Every high school had a band, two, three, four, five, six. So the DJs started to get squeezed out because the kids wanted a live band. And mm-hmm. so they'd play for, you know, whatever. And then we realized, you know, what bands need microphones and a decent sound system. So we started to do sound reinforcement where we'd have 
you know, like eight microphones and we'd have the big speakers. Uh, we'd have uh, PA, PA amps and then we'd uh, play records during the breaks. Mm. So we still had a way to kind of work our our magic in mm-hmm. there in between, but it, it was fun. It kept us uh, kept us in the biz. But but that was the change was so big and instantaneous from the DJ at the record hop, Tony Evans, to you know Peanut Butter will be performing tonight after the basketball game. So that kind of uh, mm-hmm. in the early '60s, that was what was going on. I miss. I mean, I remember listening to say Casey Kasem. Uh, maybe, you know, at least from my era, maybe one of the last great, uh, DJs or, or no, not DJs, but, um, uh, radio hosts, mm-hmm. taste, tastemaker. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could just touch a little bit on the, on, I mean, once you put that sort of power, give that to a person who becomes a gatekeeper, right? Because you want to appeal to this guy so he would play your record. So, you know, and how that kind of evolved and ultimately led to, you know, the payola thing. And, and I don't know, do you, do you have any insight into that or any, any perspective on it? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, was, was there and was, uh, was going through it, but, uh, I think like I mentioned, it was about the, DJ, not necessarily what he played. It was mm, you. You mm-hmm. would listen to the him, right. Tony Evans, the, per- the personality, the personality, and then you would hear these things and yeah. learn about them. And go, oh, yeah, you like him. He didn't, and then you know, then after that, I started listening to Wolfman Jack, who yeah, was yeah, bouncing yeah. in, you know, from XERB in uh, in uh, Mexico, and so and then KOMA at night in Oklahoma City because at night, you know, the air cools down. Long story, but. But radio signals go farther at night. They can yeah. literally go thousands of miles at night bouncing off the ionosphere back. So you'd sit there wow. and tune in your little radio at night. So in addition to your local yokels, DJ-wise, you could start hearing wow. all these different stations from all over the country. <laughs> uh, WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee was another You could another pick it up here? Station. Yes, at certain times, depended on the ionosphere, but wow. it, it covered the whole East Coast, and uh, uh, it, it was uh, it, you know it, it was huge. But a lot of those fifty thousand watt clear channels to KOMA in Oklahoma City, so there was a lot of that going on that would um, obviously, and uh, in, in most introduce you to different DJs, right? But you still, you know, you still had your homeboys and everything. But that was another uh, great part of the AM radio thing at that time. But then, as we talked about bands starting to write, then FM suddenly came on, and progressive radio stations came on, and the hippies took over the FM airways, which formerly, for the most part, were all classical stations. Mm. But they had the power; they had the hundred thousand watt stereo signal for classical records and then hmm. as in the case here of kdkb uh a group uh, a young group of uh of uh, radio peeps uh came out and they had deep pockets and they bought kmnd in mesa which was a classical hundred thousand watt stereo classical station hmm. they purchased that and then brought the uh I, I say it with love the hippie air staff from kcac which was the daytime, not making any money, just kind of bouncing on. But they had the talent; they mm. had all the DJs. So they put those things together, and this was happening all over the 
KSAN and San Francisco, all over the country at about the same time that suddenly uh, these long-haired DJs uh, started uh, taking over the airways and and singles became albums and you would start you know playing more things uh, concept albums came mm-hmm. along pink floyd you know longer cuts uh that sort of thing and um so that really changed a lot of people's perceptions of music because they were hearing a lot of artists that they'd never heard before and mm-hmm. in this town jerry riopel comes to mind mm. just off the top of my head as someone who um, got a lot of airplay here, suddenly was doing a lot of concerts here, selling records. And so um, in a few other markets, uh, it happened for him. But but all over the country, uh, there were kind of regional artists mm-hmm. that the FM radio, progressive radio stations were breaking and, and making, you know. So that was a, that was 60s, big, big change in many ways musically. I should really know this and i'm a little bit embarrassed to admit this tell me the difference between am and fm because my in my my in my perception am was always yeah like the like the weird talk radio sports or or classical music or news or it just did and an fm was all the rock stations that's yeah. that's my perception well you're up. you're older Mm. If in to my generations, the AM was the rock and roll, and the AM were the country stations, and the AM huh. and the classics were, as I said, uh, or the FM stations were more classical radio because they were fairly expensive to you know put on. They're more snobby. It's stereo, and everybody figured, well, who a Fats Domino record in stereo? You know who cares that? <laughs> so it it wasn't that big of a thing. And then affordability. I mean, literally. Uh, 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 AM stations were cheaper to run, cheaper to operate. Why? Uh, and, this is what I don't like. Well, just because uh, uh, the equipment was cost less to set it up. You know, you didn't need stereo. You needed uh, a, a, a bigger board for FM and that sort of thing. Everything had to be bigger and better just because of the uh, the quality of the signal. People, uh-huh. you know, they uh-huh. wanted a better signal all the way through from the microphone all the way through to the transmitter. And then you started moving, you know, the transmitters up because on FM, uh, the theory is the higher the stick, the higher, the further the, you you radiate your signal. Uh-huh. So that's why there's all those stations on top of uh, South Mountain uh-huh. is because it was high enough to... In the old days, they just, they just set up a transfer... Uh, um, an antenna out in the middle of a cornfield. Right. You know, you'd see it out there with the sticks. And so uh, that was kind of the way originally that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of stations got started. But then they started doing these um, uh, antenna bays where all the antennas are located in the same location just because it's theoretically the highest point. Got you. And everybody then has access to, you know, they've got a little fence with a lock on it as far as getting to each transmitter. But I don't know how many transmitters are sitting on top, radio now and television, uh-huh. on top of uh, on top of South Mountain. But, but, but that was so cool because originally the quality of the signal was so much better. Mm. Uh, and then when the uh, uh, progressive station started using those signals, you could appreciate the work that went in the dark side of the moon and you could mm. hear it on mm. your radio. 
you could hear the stereo and then people oh am i you know forget yeah, about it. Right. so that's why am has become talk radio sports religious everything else that just needs a mono, signal basically mono basically yeah. yes yeah. and and you know the sound quality isn't an important part of your presentation right so and the and the ultimate difference between am and fm is the frequency right it's a different you know, there's band, there's a band of freak. I'm not an engineer by any means, but, but, you know, and that's for walkie talkies. That's mm. for radios. That's for, uh, that's for telephone signals. That's, you know, there's a spectrum mm. of, and so each, each particular AM, FM, uh, uh, telephones, they each have a, a particular area yeah, in the spectrum gotcha. where they can do their thing, so okay. to speak. So, uh, that's uh, that's always been and an, uh, people uh, just for a long time. You know, the FCC was kind of there. They're the ones that do the licensing and and all of that, and they uh, kind of uh, uh, just let people kind of get away with things. And 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 there's such value, and people don't realize. Certainly now with uh, with all the um, you know T-Mobile and AT and T and all of these people, they're on part of that spectrum too, and so. The, the value of getting um, a good uh, a good slice of yeah, that signal yeah, is, is very, very important. And as it goes, I think the lower has advantages audio-wise to some things, and the higher up you go is another changes things. But, uh, but, but basically, uh, the AM is just broadcast on a, on a lower what 12:30 or 9:55 to like 12:30 right. and then FM's you know started like 99.7 up to I don't know 108 maybe something like that. Right. And then uh, and then now they have subcarriers too where you have you can have like three signals basically kind of on top of each other that the receivers are uh, uh, developed enough now that like uh, uh, KJAZZ, you know, they have like three different signals right. going simultaneously at the same time, basically in the same area of frequency. They are, they're able to slice it even better and still uh-huh. keep the quality. And so that's a workaround against how finite that band is, right? If you can stack, then it's infinite, yeah. right? Kind of thing. Right, Yeah. right. Interesting. Um I haven't owned a record player since I was a kid, but I love the experience of a record. You know, as you as you mentioned, Dark Side of the Moon, or the, the you know, I love how it forced you to consume it in a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And track listing was important, mm-hmm. and the whole experience of consuming um, was was such a. It's just that that's gone, right? And I wonder, as records kind of are coming back, do you do you think do you do you forecast that we'll start consuming music like that again, or do you think it's no, kind of a, no? Yeah. It's totally overblown, yeah. and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but <laughs> um, when you can have a number one record on the Billboard chart that sold nineteen thousand units, forget about it. You know, I mean, and. In the old days, they were selling 330,000 copies a week. You oh would God. be number one yeah. of a thing. Well, now between the streaming, the downloads, the the CDs, sometimes the vinyl, you know, there's so many different ways to present the music. But, but overall, 
the amount of music uh, on the on the physical side has dropped, and mm. streaming is really the only growth area of the total music package. But that being said, uh, a lot of people like vinyl. A lot of people are investing thirty five bucks a pop to mm -hmm. buy a um, hundred and eighty gram copy of some you know kind of blue by Miles mm -hmm. Davis. Uh, so uh, the demand for better quality uh, vinyl, because then people obviously got to have the money to invest in right. their stereo. Right. So it's a whole, you know, kind of uh, um, what? What do I say? It's a whole loop mm. of things that a lot of these people have, but it's uh, um, it's it's more on the high end. I mean, right. I I cringe at that. I mean, I paid three dollars and ninety eight cents for an album. What do I want to go and pay thirty? I'm looking at the things. I've got that. Might be a little noisier. I don't care. Right. I mean, I'm one of those guys that if I can hear it, it's fine. Uh, Two-inch gold cables mean nothing to me. As long as I can plug it in with my little RCA wire, phone or plug, whatever it is, and I can hear it, I'm a happy camper. But some people aren't. It, right. It's become, I don't know, it's kind of snobbish right. in a way. Hey, I've got this, i got this, i got the you know $300,000 speaker system right. and all that. Well, I guess you can hear the difference. I'm just as happy listening to James Brown on my little AR speakers, and uh, I've got the Fisher stereo uh, amplifier at home. And uh, so I'm just as happy as that. But I I can appreciate that, that people want to hear their music that much you know, bigger and better. Mm -hmm. But uh, to me, at the end of the day, it's just about being able to hear it decently and with as few, you know, clicks and pops in the case of vinyl as there mm -hmm. is. But, no, it's growing. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and they're making, blows my mind, someone else is uh, uh, going to make another pressing plant in Denver. The demand mm -hmm. for vinyl right now at the moment, but it's a bubble. It, it, mm -hmm. where it's a roller coaster, and it's going to start going down. But a lot of investment has been made even, you know, for years, the problem was pressing uh, pressers. They couldn't get them. They all went to Mexico when CDs took over. Uh, Americans dumped all of that manufacturing capability. And now they're, they want it back. You know, they're traveling all over the world to buy, you know, to Czechoslovakia to buy old stamper and, and pressing pressers to make vinyl again. And now uh, there's a company somewhere in Europe that's actually making uh, pneumatic pressing machines new again and they, they hadn't that's 40 50 years since since that's happened but there's enough of the demand but you know 15 i don't know 10 15 years from now you know we'll see things die down and the generation the younger kids that uh, the part like you were talking about the tactile part about mm -hmm. opening it up reading the liner notes you know checking it out and 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 reading the lyrics as mm -hmm. you hear it those things, if you're streaming, although you can get lyrics now, and you could sit there, I guess, on your iPhone and look right. at the lyrics. So, but uh, they don't. They can pay nine ninety eight a month and get you know forty million songs. They don't have to have a whole sh like me with my shelves of vinyl, and I'm looking at it. But as we were talking about. Uh, there's there's really a, you know demand record store day mm -hmm. just was going on um, last weekend I think and so uh, people are lined up to buy records mm -hmm. I mean it's pretty funny it, it's like it was in the 70s uh, eight when Tower was gone and there'd be a new 
whatever pink floyd album or rolling stones or beatles people would line up mm -hmm. in the store to get it when the doors well mm -hmm. they're still doing it i mean mm -hmm. which is which is good i mean that's uh that's a good thing but against that is the fact that the majority of music delivery is now in streaming yeah gosh a lot uh, there's there is a there's a cost barrier to really getting into vinyl i mean as a musician, as someone who remembers enjoying vinyl, I'm intimidated by the cost of it. But it's reassuring to hear you say, listen, it's not about a $5,000 amp or $25,000 speakers. You can still get that enjoyment yeah. from a very basic player. Well, what a lot. And, and what is happening also, because I, I do record shows, so I, you know get a table and sell records at conventions and such. And, and what is happening now is that, uh, uh, a lot more people are buying five to seven, $8 records, you know, their journey, their Santana, their whatever. They just want a copy. They don't need a high fidelity copy. They just want a copy to play. So the used record business has continued to go along. College kids will come to town in their little dorm room. They'll buy a cheap little stereo and then they'll go out to Z and buy, you know, 50 bucks worth of records at two, three. And even those dollar records, you know, they used to be a dollar in the bins. Even they're going up because the demand. So they're now $8. What, what, what used to be a $1 to $2 album on the floor in a milk crate is now an $8 album just because the demand is there. But point being that people are, are happy with just getting a clean copy of a classic album to take home and play. They mm -hmm. don't need the $35 half-speed 45 RPM disc. Is there such a thing as, like, you know, you have, as a, as a vinyl collector, like, you'll have a pristine, still in it, still in the sleeve, still in plastic that you don't play, that you just have as a backup, or are you... Oh, I, I have in the past, because I was blessed always working in the music business. So I was getting free records. I was getting promo copies. Mm. So I was trading my Capitol records with the Columbia guy and the RCA guy and the MCA guy. Mm. You know, we were in the parking. So <laughs> that's part of it too. For me, as far as a collector, they were free. You right. know, you're in the business and that makes, uh, that makes a difference, obviously. But, helps. but um, no, overall, um, really the, the uh, uh, demand for, uh, just for music i mean it's just mm. it, it's really held on it's been but but as far as the vinyl side of it i mean cds have just been dying a death i mean yeah. one of the facts that vinyl looks so good is the fact that cds are dying so fast right so that it's dying faster and vinyl is you know going up kind of slight all so they go oh my god they've, they've sold more vinyl records this year than right. they did cds last year well it's like being right. number one on a billboard chart now Right. The numbers are down so much that it really, you know, it's perspective. But, right. you know, the, I guess the fact that CD sales are going down creates a little bit of room for vinyl to grow. Sure. Right. Oh, absolutely. In the marketplace. Absolutely. But there's still CD junkies out there, mm -hmm. and then there's still people that, you know, enjoy the enjoy the CD. But but overall, the the, the streaming and downloading is, is really what's... Uh, what's bringing the income to all of the record companies. Well, I would say income in quotes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's well, really no, tough I mean, to make any bread no, as, a, as a musician. Well, yeah, as a musician, that's right. that's very, very true, unfortunately. But the, the point is also that 
um, um, older music is selling more. People find that hard to believe, but record companies are making their profits on their 50, 40, 30 year old music that mm. they're not paying any studio mm. time, right. signing fees, right. touring, none of that. That's, I mean, the new music is really shrinking as far as a portion of the total income. Right. So they're making tons of money off of music that's been paid for, for years, years and years yeah. ago. And, you know, the royalty rate's nice and small, right. and maybe right. they're dead and gone, and they get to keep all the money. So right. so that's another factor, too, that that more people are appreciating old music. I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit, it's a 501c3, founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is going to be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. Do you have a least favorite medium? Like, if you... <laughs> Cassette. Like, yeah. <laughs> Next. <laughs> no, I just... There's no, there's no, it's, it was terrible. Little bitty head, little thing. It always breaks off the leader tape. You know, I mean, it's just a terrible, but then, you know, in those days, same with the A track, if you're in right. your car, you don't care because right. there's, there's all, and it's certainly easy and convenient. Right. But if you like the last track on the side to have to sit there right. and, and rewind or fast forward, uh, as the yeah, as the tape whips around, uh, it uh, it, yeah. it wears out and they break a lot easier. But but yeah, I'd, I'd say that uh, de definitely the cassette was one of the. But but that's what it's always been about. Record companies are always selling you a new way right. to 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 sell you something that you've got on record right. you've right. got it on vinyl you've got it on a cd and now you right. need it on a midi disc and now you need <laughs> it on a you know 45 rpm 12 inch rec i mean right. that's what it's all about for them they yeah. just okay let's just repackage it let's just re we'll find a brand new format right. and convince them that they need it because but it's funny now that it's kind of gone all the way around back to vinyl that given all the uh, all the different little uh, formats that have come and gone over the years that uh, at the end of the day uh, vinyl seems to be the one as far as that mm -hmm. part of the music well uh, thing I'm, that people want i'm hearing that bands are making cassette tapes again oh they are no and it's which is goofier yeah i mean i know there are companies that they do releases on cassettes <laughs> and i'm going what are you thinking what it's just a novelty people, right? right but right. don't you want well and I'll probably it's got a download card too. Right, I, I right. don't know because I haven't invested one. But I, I just chuckle when I see the hey our new uh, because uh, was it Bandcamp does a lot of those squirrely yeah. things and uh, uh, but but people 
people buy them. I um, I own some <laughs> masters in publishing and tape, and 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 one of them is uh, is Sanford Clark. Uh, it's an album that came out on a label called Ramco, and and so over the years it has been released as a re-released as a vinyl album. But just a couple years ago, uh, somebody, I don't know what company, they made, maybe it was Lightning, I don't know if it was Numero or Lightning Attic, they made like 300 cassettes and sold them, and they're sold out on yeah. Bandcamp. Yeah. So it, it cracks me up, because there, it would have been on cassette 40 years ago in the sure. day. You would have gotten your LP or a cassette. Right. So, um, you know, it's kind of, you know, things, are, we're so cyclic, and you stick around long. Yeah, because... You know, like music, you, you couldn't give away 70s music years ago. Right. I mean, you just could not TK, disco, all that stuff. But but groups age, the younger generation wants something that their parents didn't like. So everything just kind of goes around. And now there's a lot of collectible 70s mm. music that, as I say, 10, 12, 15 years ago, they would have been in that dollar, that $2 dollar, yeah. milk crate. On that topic, do you have kind of a prized vinyl? Do you have a, a prized record? And the next question is, is there a re is there like the white elephant record that, that you just would love to get your hands on? Well, for me, I... Um, well, how many records do you have? I, I just got rid of some. I, I, I don't know, somewhere around, I suppose, 100,000 easily, maybe wow. 100 between... But then I've got tapes, I've got cassettes. I, I collect anything and everything Arizona. Mm. So I've got hundreds of 80s, 70s era cassettes because that's how bands put their right. stuff out. Sure. Never, never pray. It was always a cassette. Right. So I was in radio, so I got a lot of those. And, and, and then you know, I collected them too uh, um, over the years. But uh, you, you add that up, the... Um, the CDs, I've got a huge collection of Arizona stuff, a large collection of vinyl. So um, you add things, I'm sure it's 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 well over a hundred thousand pieces. Right. But uh, um, I nowadays, getting back to uh, original question, I'm I'm mostly collecting uh, Arizona things. So um, there are a few. Uh, items that I know about and then some that I don't even know about that I'll go to a show and it's got Phoenix, Arizona on or something. I go, wow. So, but most of the uh, the records from Arizona um, I have or know about and I've been able to collect over the years. But but then you're always upgrading. You're always looking for a better copy. Mm -hmm. You're looking for, uh, you know, probably the the holy grail of of arizona is is the spiders on mascot that was the first record alice cooper made uh wow. very few very very few pressed maybe 300 oh, wow. probably most of them thrown away but there's only like five known copies in the world you know <laughs> i mean so it makes it a real wow so i've been lucky enough to have you know to have one of those and wow. uh so there are records like that that uh um go for the thousands when you can find them but uh then some records that used to be worth five hundred dollars or you know forty dollars now i mean it's a it's it's really kind of strange how some things you know continue to appreciate but most of them uh depreciate over over the years but uh, it's a supply and demand thing but uh, um i've got a just a great 
collection of uh, of Arizona music of all styles, square dance records, n- Native American chants, uh, anything and everything that's got uh, an Arizona connection. Uh, I try and uh, I try and have in my archive, and then. You need the posters and the flyers and the radio charts and everything else to go along with it. So I've got a lot of uh, I've got a lot of that stuff uh, too. But uh, uh, I pretty much got everything that I know about now. At least I've I've got a copy. But uh, uh, you, you never know. It's a crazy world, and some uh, I have a lot of you know friends know what I collect and hey Johnny have you seen this you know and most of the time you know I have but you you never know when something will pop up that's brand new to you because when you start looking at all the records now on Pop Psych and Discogs which are the platforms kind of for uh, record prices and sales in eBay it's just mind-boggling how many record labels there were oh, and the, yeah. it is mind-boggling because I was out here. I was in the business. I worked for a distributor. I DJed. I was hanging out at radio stations. So I had access to tons of vinyl. And then you realize when you see some of these uh, uh, for sale lists from uh, different parts of the country and you see these records that you've never even heard of that are gone for a couple hundred bucks. So mm. somebody must want them. Mm. You realize uh, I had no idea. And I was there at the time. I was. You know, Wakefield Pressing was here, so I was aware of how records are made and everything. But uh, when you realize how much music was being recorded and pressed all over the country, it's it, it's mind-boggling. There's just tons of records out there that uh, I've yet to run into that uh, uh, people are looking for. And the amount of music that wasn't played, right? I mean, I, I yeah. feel like... Yeah, the the number of records pressed versus the the number of records played. Well, that's it. You know, people. Oh, it's a Beatles record. It's a Rolling Stone. It's Elvis. Yeah, but they made millions of them. Right, I mean, the right. ones the and this is a generalization, but the ones normally that are more sought after are worth more money. Are the small private presses, the little group that went to Camelback High School that went to audio recorders and made a record and they pressed up 300 copies and gave them away to their girlfriends. And that was kind of, and if it's got a fuzz guitar in it, mm. if it's got a surf beat in it, uh, you know, the, if it's got a, a funky drummer in it, if it's got a laid back flute solo, uh, there's all kinds of uh, records now that were not hits. I mean, that's mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. are surprised that, that the, the ones that weren't the hits are in general, the most collectible, hmm. valuable. As a private collector, it, it almost sounds like the goal has shifted, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the goal has shifted from just being a private consumer to really preserving something and, and creating a space where this music can live on and you, and you can kind of be the guardian of, of this music. Is that, is that true? No, that's true. I mean, I'm the I I bill myself as Arizona's unofficial music historian, and I mean, it's um, it's just something that I I kind of fell into. I started early on looking to find people, the stories, meet the record producers, the label owners, the bands, the singers, and so over the years, I've interviewed literally hundreds of uh, people that were involved, engineers. Uh, in in the business and uh, um, luckily now I ended up 
uh, purchasing Ramco Records, which was huh. Audio Recorders um, label. So Audio Recorders was the best one of several, but it was the most successful of the studios here and um, probably best known for the twangy, the, the Rebel Rouser sound, the Dwayne Eddy Echo was created here. That's, mm. that's a unique Arizona musical contribution mm. is that sound of that guitar, that fat, echoey mm. uh, sound that was created right here on 7th Street in Weldon. Mm. Uh, so that sound, when Dwayne Eddy Rebel Rouser hit in 58, that was a hit all over the world, mm. all over the world. England, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Paris, Germany. Everybody uh, wanted to pick up a guitar. Everybody thought, I can do that. I mean, mm. that's part of the fun that you mm -hmm. see someone singing, you, oh, I can do that, or you see someone playing. That's the, the wonderful thing about music that, it like James Brown hearing that, and I, go, I oh, wow, I want to, you know, I want to, what's the drummer doing? I, I can do that. That's that's part of the fun of the of the music scene when it uh, when it uh, jumps off the vinyl or CD whatever you're doing and it encourages you mm -hmm. to want to do that yourself. That's that's because uh, I know dreams. you're all about musicians and music and that's yeah. you know that that's part of it that inspiration. Yeah. But that Dwayne Eddy sound in '58 just influenced uh, uh, thousands and thousands. Of of guitar players to try and pick it up and then recreate the sound. Emulate that sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were here when Tempe was kind of put on the map, so to speak, um, early '90s with you know huge bands like I mean, obviously the Jim Blossoms and um, how did how did you feel about that? I mean, because Tempe kind of prior was a little sleepy college town, yeah, and all of yeah, a sudden, you know, it everyone, was. as you say, is trying to chase that sound. You know, bands uh, around the country were trying to sound, you know, like the Gin Blossoms or capture that thing. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. How was that moment for you? Did you enjoy that music? I mean, were you proud mm -hmm. of Tempe? I, well, yeah, I, I, I am. I mean, um, I... In those days, I'm going to say 80s and probably in 90s for sure, I was working for Evening Star. So mm. I saw it from a different level. It mm -hmm. wasn't, I was working with a lot of those bands, but I didn't necessarily be able, to, was able to sit and appreciate what they were doing mm. because it's a job. Mm. It's eight o'clock. Let's get on. It's, you know, 12 o'clock. Let's get out of here. So, so, you know, Long Wong's. Uh, Tempe had such a great uh, a club star system. Uh, Dooley's uh, After the Gold Rust, the Electric Ballroom, uh, the Chewies, the three mm -hmm. different Chewies. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was a wonderful, and it had a college. I mean, driven by a college, that's an important part of it. Right. But even earlier when I was going, there was JD's, which was the first double-decker club here. Two years later, Mr. Lucky started on the west right. side of town. Right. But... Um, you know the it, it's always we've always had a good uh, you know a good music scene here and then tons of smaller little clubs you know little uh, bars and dives uh, to support it but uh, the Red Dog was another one so there were th then they would book national bands so on the weekend you could go see you know Rick Nelson or Paul Revere and the Raiders whatever it mm -hmm. was. 
Uh, so, but during the week, and then for opening acts, they always had you know local Locals, bands, yeah. and that was all that had a lot to do. And then another part of it in those early the sixty days were were the DJs. The DJs became promoters. Hadley huh. Morrell, uh, Tony Evans, as I mentioned, Sunny Knight. So they had a club. Hey, come out to Sunny's this weekend. You know we're going to have the Vibratos playing this weekend. So and then he'd take him in the studio and make a record. Huh. Uh, Jack Curtis had this label called Mascot, very prolific. I had Peanut Butter, The Spiders, uh, George Washington Bridge. Just had a lot of local bands. So he had a club, and then he had a record label, and then he was also the entertainment writer for the Arizona Republic. Oh, Jesus! So Cornering a lot the of these guys, right? <laughs> but but there were quite a few of them kind of mm-hmm. doing on on bigger and smaller levels. And wow. up in Prescott, the same thing. The guy would be a DJ. A lot of you know, uh, uh, Waylon was a DJ before he started singing. You know wow. that 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 kind of tie in between DJing and nightclubs and then recording wow. uh, is a you know is a big a big tie-in and even more so and i'll just draw lee hazelwood which is probably the most uh important producer one of the most that, that came out of here you know started as a dj in coolidge and that's where he met Dwayne eddie and he brought him up here for shows saturday uh, to madison square garden and then he saw ramsey's recording studio and he wanted to be a songwriter he was always writing songs so he was looking for people to perform his songs huh. And so that was kind of the impetus uh, for him to do it. But a lot of uh, the, there's a lot of promotion in these things. So so to have that tie-in of a radio show, a club, and a record label, and a manager, band manager, and then they'd send them over to L.A. and then they'd book some L.A. groups over here. Right, right. So we were close to the West Coast, which is pretty cool too, as far as supporting the local music scene in the mm-hmm. 60s there were a lot of bands that would drive over to the west coast and play a few gigs there and they'd send bands over here to and and to some extent in tucson too it was going on down there so then there was a lot of phoenix tucson tucson bands that come up here and play phoenix bands that go down there yeah. and, and so uh, there was a lot of kind of that that interaction on a regional kind of localized level that you kind of build your chops and uh, uh, get better and better as you play more gigs. I, I kind of love that business model. Have a club, be a DJ, so you got the promotion good, you have the venue, you can cut a record when the band comes to town, and then if you're a songwriter, on top of all that, they record your song, you're the writer, you know, like, ho- like holy shit, that just blows my mind. Yeah. What a awesome incredible business model don't forget to start your publishing company though. oh that's right. a lot of yeah. those guys forgot publishing in the mix uh, yeah and that's why floyd ramsey who owned audio recorders had a publishing company so uh, these bands had come in to record and they say well you gotta if you want radio stations to play your record you have to have a publisher on bmi or ascap yeah but he said i can do that for you so he just signed them up as a and not as a recording artist, but as a writer. And so he published a lot of songs that were recorded at his studio that uh-huh. he didn't necessarily have to put the money up for the pressing of the right. of the record. So 
So that, and it was, it, you know, as I said early on, it was kind of a mystery publishing and all that. Sure. And, and now it's no big deal. Bands can sit in their bedroom, record stuff, put a video up on YouTube, publish it, put it up on Spotify, uh, you know, go yeah. to uh, uh, Bandcamp and sell, sell their cassettes right. at Bandcamp. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's much more, uh, no, not balance is the wrong word, but, but the artist has more power now, which mm-hmm. is wonderful, unlike mm-hmm. 40 years ago. When the record companies had all the power, mm-hmm. you had no idea what you were selling. You get a little thing, statement, six months. Yeah, you mm-hmm. sold 32,000 copies, and we loaned you all this money for tour support. Right. Uh, the posters, uh, we bought new uniform, we bought you some amplifiers, the van broke down. Right. You, know, you still owe us $10,000. Right. You know, uh, uh. <laughs> So there was a lot right. of that that... Uh, bands, uh, especially uh, black groups in the in the fifties and sixties, had to deal with. But with management and and the internet now, uh, the power so in mm-hmm. quotes has has flipped over to the bands and the singers. They they're able to control a lot right. more, which which is great. Yeah, look at Taylor Swift. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the guy takes Seltzer Masters. She re-records every. I mean, that just cracks me up. Right, because. You know, most people will go, oh, that's not the original song. But m- most people, they they don't really pay that much attention to right. it. And especially for sync licensing, which is where the real money is now, right. is in licensing this old music for movies and cable television and such. So uh, as long as you're familiar with the song, it sounds like right. it. And similar it, enough. Similar enough. Yeah. Uh, you can get the licensing money, and you don't have to pay more money to right. Universal or whoever you don't has, split has that the revenue. original version. Right. right, right. You've got it. So yeah. a lot of groups, um, there was a label, funny label in the, I guess it was the 80s, was it? KTEL Records, and they were in Minneapolis. And so all these groups would come through, you know, Chubby Checker would come. So they'd book him, and he'd re-record all of his... So you you mm. get 20 Chubby Checker hits on KTEL. Well, it's not the Cameo original recordings. Mm-hmm. It's a sound-alike re-recording. And so mm. over the years, guys like Little Richard... They re-recorded their hits like on five different labels. Mm. Every to every five mm. years, you can re-record. So there's, you know, you gotta mm. kind of if you're looking for the original, and if you're an old fart like me, you go, no, that's not the original. That's a re <laughs> you know. But most people, oh wow, that's good golly, Miss Molly, oh that's fantastic. So yeah, so there's a lot of that in there. But then in a way, that's great, especially if you're the artist, sure, like Taylor Swift, yeah. and now you've got recordings of every one of your hits right. available, and you own the for, master, and you own those men, right? Oh, so brilliant. her former manager whatever i mean that's uh that's you know that's a a hard thing to have your creativity just you know being totally controlled by by somebody else and not being fair with you i mean you you know for the most part there was a lot of money to be made as these things uh, were hits but uh but anyway, it's a crazy, uh, it's a crazy uh, music scene out there. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy business for yeah. sure. Are you still uh, picking through bins? Oh, I do. I, I, I'm not anywhere near what I used to. I used to go out every Saturday, garage sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I've kind of uh, with the internet now, and I've, I've got quite a uh, few boxes of records. I do record shows, so. Every few months, um, the past couple ones have been at the VFW on Thomas, but I'll get a table and sell my stuff there. And then I sell on eBay also. I have a lot of Arizona stuff, uh, 
available there. And I will also have new uh, musical projects. I re I repress like Sanford Clark 45s on Ramco. So yeah. that's a lot of fun because some of those 60s recordings are worth, you know, 30, 40, 60 more in some cases so mm -hmm. so i have fun still keeping ramco and the history of audio recorders alive but uh, no i i enjoy record i used to go to austin twice a year for 22 years wow. which was the biggest record show in the country and they still they still do the show but but it's changed now and so instead of the rockabilly cats from japan and germany and the uk buying a lot of the doo-wop and rockabilly uh it's 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 more uh parents buying those seven dollar journey records for their kid who's in college yeah you know the the i guess the overall gross is about the same but it's not it's not uh, collectible records now it's more common records that mm -hmm. are kind of driving customers to mm -hmm. uh, to record shows but it's still all about music so that's just you know that's just part of the that's just part of the way you know things have uh, changed, but but yeah, there's a small uh, you know a group of uh, collectors and uh, who get together for these uh, record shows, and occasionally I'll just sell out of my garage because I get a lot of uh, dollar. I can't quite send them to Goodwill yet, but mm. maybe if I can get a buck. So mm. uh, I, I, occasionally I'll get records from people. People call me up. Are you still buying records? So I'm still. Uh, uh, collecting records, uh, you know, when I can, but but not with the uh, kind of um, uh, what shall I say the uh, the vigor mm. that I have uh, I have in the past because I've got so much stuff now, and then I look at it and go, you know, I don't listen. I, I've mm. got it. It's comforting to know oh, I've got that record. Okay, and then mm. occasionally someone will come up, hey, so and so, this is a you know, some obscure private record. And I, oh, do I have that? And you go out there and you pull it and you have it. So, so that's, uh, that's enjoyable, but, uh, I'm just trying to enjoy the, uh, the music that I have collected mm -hmm. now. And, uh, occasionally I'll, uh, I, I've done podcasts in the past, so I need to, uh, uh, get back, uh, doing, uh, a podcast from my, cause I've got a little, dj mix and turntable setup in my record room so i can do that so hmm. uh that's something else i've done and then occasionally i'll i'll spin out uh play live uh i opened did a couple of shows for charlie and uh uh did um uh sharon jones a couple of times hmm. and did a couple of her shows and so uh occasionally but I kind of, I'm not a scratcher. I, I start mm -hmm. it, I play it, I might tell you what you're listening to, mm -hmm. sort of a thing. So for me, it's more like a radio show mm -hmm. than, than one of these show. hip, yeah, right. than one of these hip DJs doing that, which I admire. It's amazing how talented some of these yeah. kids are now. But a lot of it's on the hard drive. They don't bring the crates in. Right. So uh, that, but hey, in the end, it's all about what people perceive on the other side of the speaker. So right. whether it's a real piece of vinyl or it's a, a data, as long as it gets them to move their butt, you know, right. that's uh, that's what it's all about. Is every record that you own or is every record that you own for sale or is it is it again like if there are some records you're just not willing to part oh, with? Oh, no. I mean, my Arizona collection, as I mentioned that yeah. uh, Spiders record over the years, I've had some hellacious <laughs> offers really? for that record because it is that rare. And 
I can't because then that 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 takes away from my collection. Then right. I don't have the most complete collection of Arizona records in the world, which right. I do now. Right. So I can't. Uh, you know, I can appreciate that, and I can appreciate wanting to have something. And yeah, there was a there was an Australian Alice Cooper collector who just kept hammering me because he had everything from Sweden, Nova Scotia, you know, Australia. I, I'm not that crazy in the overseas pressings as one can get, especially with someone as prolific as Alice Cooper. But he didn't have that mm. that mascot record, so. Mm. He uh, he kept hammering me for a couple of years, and then he ended up selling off his collection. Huh. So, but I I've still I've still got it. So no, you know I. But I'm always looking for uh, better copies, as I say. And yeah. I have a box of Arizona 45 fives and albums that I take to the shows, as well as other other types of music too. So. Mm. Um, I, I kind of specialize in that and then people kind of seek me out. They're looking for something special. Mm. Uh, I might have it, uh, but, uh, no, the Arizona collection is, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's intact. Yeah. It's off limits. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it was really very interesting chatting with you cool. and, and hearing a little bit about Great, your Brian. history and, yeah. and what you're trying to do and preserve this preserve the music man indeed got to do it because yeah. uh you know it's, I'm, I'm not kidding myself it's not everybody's cup of tea but for me the memories because most of the people now that made music in the 50s and 60s they're gone they're mm -hmm. memories mm -hmm. and i was lucky enough to meet these people and talk to them and and some cases make some money with them selling their records and and so uh as i said uh it's a wonderful thing to uh to be uh, playing records in your eighth grade lunch uh, in the cafeteria and manage. Because I, I was blessed, man. I got out. I got to work for ABC Dunhill Capital Records. I lived in London for uh, three years working wow. for Capital. I was in the Tower for two wow. years. So Tempe boy to get out and, uh, um, you know, be be part of the music thing for all these years uh, is has been uh, great. So I've just been a been a lucky kid very blessed wow wow just a just a part of such a, an incredible legacy i feel like you know uh i appreciate your time you bet i'll Great let bye. you i'll let you go but uh i don't think this will be the last conversation that we have <laughs> cool cool <laughs>